Welcome to this sermon from Silver Lake Baptist Church. Our mission is to celebrate the greatness of God with all we are for the joy, hope, and renewal of our community. We are so glad you have chosen to listen to our message. We pray you will be blessed by your time with us today. What do you think of when you hear the term mob mentality or herd mentality? I, I didn't want to call it herd mentality too much, because but the herds aren't here this morning, so. <laughs> I usually think of incidents like the May Day riots in Seattle. Remember that a few years ago? Yeah. Mob mentality describes how people are influenced by others to do things based on an emotional rather than a rational basis. People affected by mob mentality make different decisions than they would individually. It doesn't always lead to things like riots. And unfortunately, Christians can be affected by it too. 20 years ago, for those of you who were around then, you might remember something called Y2K. That stands for the year 2000. In a nutshell, it was a potential problem with computer software, kind of like when a car odometer rolls over 100,000 miles. You look at it and you wonder, does this car have 10,000 miles on it or 110,000 miles? You can't tell. And not knowing can lead to problems. So because, because so many th- things in our world use computers, if they all stopped working at midnight, January 1st, 2000, we'd be in a heap of trouble, right? course that was never a remote possibility but there were some so-called experts who said it would happen and many people even Christians believed them back then I had been writing software for more than 20 years and so my church asked me to do some research and make a presentation to help people understand the issue to get the facts but because so many people were in panic mode including some trusted leaders they chose to believe the ones who were inciting the panic And by the way, a number of the doomsayers also happened to be selling things like bomb shelters, (laughs) generators, apocalypse survival kits, and even composting toilets when the water failed. As you might have noticed, January 1st, 2000 was not the end of the world. Only a handful of systems throughout the entire world experienced minor problems due to the Y2K bug. But back then, I wrote a little song. It was kind of a spoof. I I like spoofs. But I didn't share it with people at that time because I didn't want to upset anyone. But I think 20 years is enough to let people calm down. So here we go. This is is from the perspective of someone with the mob mentality. My hope is built on nothing less than Y2K's global distress. On hoarding food for months on end and water for my own and friends. For Y2K I am prepared. I've hid my gold, I've sold my shares. I've hid my gold, I've sold my shares. The power grid will fail till then. The question is not if, but when. The phone won't work. The car won't run. Embedded chips wish there were none. 
For Y2K I am prepared, my generator is repaired, my generator is repaired. I fear the fail of food supply, nor do I trust that planes will fly. When it's as bad as it will get, I'll use my composting toilet. For Y2K I am prepared, my stores of food will not be shared. My stores of food will not be shared. Let's pray. Father, speak to us through your word this morning. Do not let us be distracted by the worries of this world. I thank you that you have our lives, everything about our world in your hands, and you've got a plan. We love you. We honor you. We give you glory because you deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen. So please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14, verse 8. So if you remember, Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. Got, got those good maps. They started off in, uh, that's, that's the current view, started off in Antioch. They went through the whole island of Cyprus to Paphos and up to Perga and the other Antioch. Um, there, they went to the synagogue and told people, both Jews and non-Jews, the good news, the gospel. Many of them became followers, followers of Jesus. But the Jewish leaders chased them out to Iconium. That's where, again, they went into the synagogue and, and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed. And they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who is granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But again... The Jewish leaders who didn't believe tried to mistreat them, so they fled to Lystra, which was not too far away, still kind of in the same region. And it seems like there wasn't, it probably wasn't a synagogue in Lystra, at least they don't talk about it, Luke doesn't talk about it in Acts. So Paul and Barnabas' approach to sharing was different, as we'll see. So verse 8, at Lystra... A man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. It's interesting to look at this repetitive description. He had no strength in his feet, he had been lame since he was born, and he had never walked. I mean, clearly, he wasn't faking, and it wasn't an injury. This is a major deal. He'd never used his legs. In verse 9, this man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who... When, when he, when Paul, had fixed his gaze on him and seen that he had faith to be made well. Wait, faith to be made well? Faith in what? Faith by itself isn't a thing. Faith must have an object. Here, of course, it's faith in Jesus Christ. Faith to be made well doesn't mean he believed that he could be healed. He, it means that he believed that God is who he says he is. He believed the gospel. We saw this same uh, phrase used in, when Jesus was healing people. In Matthew nine twenty two. Jesus turned and seeing her said, speaking to a woman, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well, was healed. Or Mark ten fifty one. 
And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him, began following him on the road. So Paul, Paul had seen that his, he had the faith to be made well. In verse 10, he said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. He did have faith in Christ to be made well. And he showed it by obeying Paul. I mean, he'd never used his legs before. He jumped up and started walking around. I like a couple of Greek words in here that Paul used. The word upright is orthos. It means straight. And the word for feet is podos. You put these two together and you get the word orthopedic. Straight feet. In the summer before my ninth grade year in school, I remember my dad telling me that I was limping. I remember always denying it. He's like a teenager, right? Now I'm not limping. (laughs) I didn't want to admit that my leg hurt. It might keep me from doing all the fun summer things I wanted. But at the end of the summer, I went back to school and to football practice. After one day of football practice, my leg hurt so much that I couldn't walk. So my parents took me to the doctor the next day, and he took an x-ray of my left hip. It wasn't broken. He called it a slipped capital femoral epiphysis. The epiphysis is the little cartilage growth plate in children's bones that allow the bones to grow longer. Then they turn to bone as we stop growing. Mine had somehow become soft. You picture a hip bone up there. It had become, and it bent. The x-ray of my hip looked like a melted ice cream cone. So they admitted me to the hospital where the orthopedic surgeon put three long pins or lag bolts, that's what I look like to me, in my hip bone to keep it from bending further. Then I was on crutches for four months while I healed. Four months is a long time to be on crutches uh, for a teenager. But I got really good at them, and in fact, I still remember, well, can keep from doing that, but that's a problem when you have them, and it's a lot harder to pick up when you can't bend down to pick them up. But it's the nice thing about the wireless mic here. You know, they taught me how to go down the stairs without a problem, and they taught me to, you know, I figured out how to walk sideways. <laughs> and I even, I probably can't do this anymore, but I used to be able to walk just with the crutches and not touching my feet. No, it's probably not. See, you know, up the stairs. Right? But I was quite good at it. I could run at a fast jog. And you know how if you've ever used crutches, you kind of get sore under here. After four months, you're not sore there anymore. And it's possibly how my shoulders got big, too. I'm not sure about that, but it's like doing dips all day. So after I got off my crutches, I still had to have physical therapy, right? Do exercises to strengthen the muscles that I hadn't been using. The point here is that this man had been lame since he was born. He'd never used those muscles at all. Yet he jumped up and started walking. When God fixes something, it's really completely fixed. That's my first point, is that God's works 
are distinct from man's deeds. You know, it's an amazing thing that they can repair problems like I had, but it's not like when God fixes stuff. About a year ago, you might remember we read in Acts about Peter and John healing a man in Jerusalem. Acts 3, verse 2, starting in verse 2. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to sit down, set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. Give me some money. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were straightened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So there's similarities between these two things, right? These two stories. They were both lame. Both men were lame since they were born. They both stood up with a leap and started walking. A major difference was that the man in Jerusalem was begging at the gate, expecting to get money. But Peter lifted him up in the name of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, this man that we just read about had been listening to Paul's message and had believed it and stood up himself. This healing, like the one before, was accomplished by God's hand. It wasn't fake to impress the audience. However, the people that saw the two miracles responded very differently. In Acts, back in Acts 14, verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become men and have come down to us. They were really impressed by what they saw, but apparently they had not been listening to, to Paul's message the way the healed man had. By listening to the gospel, this man's life was changed. Instead, they just put what they had seen into their own pre-existing religion, kind of mixing it in there. It's called, that's called syncretism, blending Christianity with something else. It's bad. It's bad, and it usually has bad consequences. My second point, Christianity is distinct from all other religions. The crowds were getting excited, but the verse also tells us that they were speaking in Lyconian. Paul and Barnabas did not understand what they were saying until later, as we'll see. Verse 12, And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Who are Zeus and Hermes? These guys are, according to Greek mythology, the god Zeus was the chief god, the father of gods and men. Hermes was his son, the the messenger of the gods, kind of like Mercury, the Roman gods. He also, Hermes invented speech. And there was a legend that these two gods had visited this area in the past. So that's why these guys were excited about this. Verse 13, The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. They were going to sacrifice these bulls, or oxen, 
to Paul and Barnabas as if they were gods. Verse 14, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd. Now they finally understood what was going on. Why did they tear their robes? Is a way that they showed horror of idolatrous worship that they wanted no part of. We've seen this in other places in the New Testament. The high priest did the same thing at Jesus' trial in Matthew 26, 65. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. It was just a reaction, a reaction that they had. So they rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, verse 15, Man, why are you doing these things? We also are men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. They're saying, we're not gods. We're ordinary human beings like you. When I translated this, this is what I got. We ourselves are also men of the same nature as you, declaring the good news to you to turn away from this empty idol worship toward the living God. The word for turn, epistrepho, means to repent. But repent is a real Christian-y kind of word. But it has a good meaning, though. It means to turn away from the old empty things, gods, in this case, the gods of stone that men had created, and turn toward the true living God who created the universe. If you see in this quote, there's, there's these capital letters. It means it's an Old Testament verse, and this is from Psalm 146, verse 6, which pretty much says that. There's a couple other that talk about couple other verses in the Old Testament. There's more than one. There are many. Jeremiah 10.10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes <laughs> and the nations cannot endure His indignation. 1 Thessalonians 1.9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned, from, turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Our God is not just something we made up. Verse 16. This is Paul going on with his sermon, little short sermon. In in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul was probably thinking of Psalm 145, verse, uh, starting in verse 9. The Lord is good to all. His mercies are over all his works. Or then later in verse 15. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. And later in his letter to the church in Rome, Paul's, Paul explains this further. Romans 1, 19. That which is known about God is evident within them, the people of the world, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. 
For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So it's interesting to notice the different, um, how God, Paul's gospel presentation is different than it was uh, compared to when he's speaking to Jewish people in the synagogue. This crowd is totally unfamiliar with the God of the Bible and Old Testament prophecy. So Paul adjusted his presentation accordingly. He still used and quoted scripture, though. He just used verses that were more appropriate for his audience. That's my third point, is when sharing the gospel, it's important to know your audience. Start with points of common understanding. Before talking about Jesus, Paul introduced them to the living God that created everything and provided food and gladness and good things. Verse 18, even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. The crowds were really excited, although about the wrong thing. It was difficult to get them to listen to the facts. So about 15 years ago, I noticed that my leg started hurting again when I did certain things. I used to do a lot of physical activity, skiing, moving sound equipment, helping people move, repairing stuff. But it just kept getting worse. So finally I went to the doctor who sent me to the orthopedic surgeon. And looking at an x-ray, it was clear that my hip had worn out with osteoarthritis and needed to be replaced. The only problem was that I was on the young side for a hip replacement, since artificial hips are only expected to last like 20 years. My hip had worn out because of the funny angle it had been in since the junior high surgery. It slowly stopped doing things that made it hurt, most of which were things I really enjoyed. When I finally did get it replaced, I was impressed with how quickly it healed compared to when I was a teenager. Technology and procedures had improved a lot in 30 years. I was only on crutches for a month. Back to... Acts, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Those Jewish leaders came a long way. They were very influential. The Greek makes it clear that they were the ones that hit Paul with the large rocks. But the Lystrans, who had just previously, just a minute ago wanted to honor them as gods, didn't stop them. These guys were fickle to the core. Talk about your mob mentality. Just following the crowd. My fourth point is to keep from being one of the mob. Know your Bible. So he says, they dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. This verse implies that Paul wasn't dead, even though he might have been. He was certainly left for dead. Here's what Paul had to say about this incident later. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, 25, and he's got a big list of hardships he faces as a servant of Christ. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night in the day I have spent in the deep. And he's got a much bigger list that that's part of. Verse 20, But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. This is another place where God healed someone miraculously. 
Paul was either dead or as good as dead. They didn't have pr concussion protocol in those days. But you better believe he had a concussion at least and probably far worse internal injuries. But he got up, walked into town, and the next day he started off for Derby about 60 miles away. It was got a map of that. There it is. So, was the ministry at Lystra a failure or a success? There were clearly a number of new believers. The man that was healed, the disciples that stood around him, there was a young disciple present that isn't mentioned until later. The name you'll recognize, Timothy. Timothy grew up in Lystra and was probably a teenager at this time. Later in Acts, we're going to read Acts 16.1. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple there was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Timothy became a close companion of Paul. Paul wrote letters to Timothy. We have those in our Bible. 1 Timothy 1-2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Again in 2 Timothy 1-5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. 2 Timothy 3.10 Now you followed my teaching, conduct, faith, purpose, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and at Lystra. What perse persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. So I don't think it was a failure. A couple years after I had my hip replaced, I resumed a bunch of the activity I'd stopped earlier, especially setting up sound equipment, climbing ladders, crawling in crawl spaces, stuff like that. But then my right leg started bothering me. After a Sunday of singing in the choir on the worship team, including practices, my leg hurt so bad that it would take the entire Monday to recover. Once again, I went to the orthopedic surgeon, and my right hip, too, had severe osteoarthritis and needed to be replaced. I'd been favoring it for so many years, I wouldn't put weight on the left, so I had worn out this hip as well. I had waited longer than I should have to get it replaced. Maybe that's a common theme with me. <laughs> After the surgery, the doctor mentioned that it had been like digging out gravel because of all the many bone spurs, which are kind of a side effect of this type of arthritis. But here was something that amazed me. My recovery time was even shorter than six years before. Technology and procedures had improved in that short time as well. I spent one day, in the one day less in the hospital and didn't even need any pain meds at home. I still had a few months of physical therapy. And I continued to limp for several weeks because, well, even though it didn't hurt to walk, I'd been limping. I was kind of good at it. It was just a habit. <laughs> <laughs> but I can do things again without having to take a day to recover. I recently finished remodeling our bathroom. I have no problem standing up here for a couple hours Sunday mornings. God is good. Amen. That's my fifth point. God's plan is perfect, and his timing is perfect. 
just like Paul, bad things can happen to us, even when we're doing what God wants, even when we're following his will. We've been reading about this in Job too. But if we remain faithful and trust him, his plans are always the best. His plans are quite often different than ours. I'm certain that Paul did not plan to be revered as a god one minute and get knocked unconscious and left for dead the next. I did not intend to have my life periodically interrupted with painful leg problems, followed by major surgeries and recovery periods. His plans, God's plans are different, and I know now better than mine. His timing is perfect, too. If I'd lived 100 years ago, I'd have been disabled all my adult life. As it is, I'm normal. Well, maybe not. (laughs) But my life is good, and I'm thankful. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. We love you. We thank you for your timing, your perfect will, your plan. You are an amazing God, and you love us even when we don't get what we want, I thank you that you've got plans to give us the right thing. To, um, and we want to give you the glory for the things that we do. You deserve it all. You deserve our honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, check out our website at www.silverlakebaptist.com dot o-r-g